Chapter 4 Kharkiv's Invisible Bodies When I walk out of Kharkiv Station, newly arrived and on unsteady early morning legs, I'm greeted by an open square. One of these Soviet-era deserted squares that gives you the feeling of not yet having entered the city, but of standing on ground that has been hastily clad in stone before the hustle and bustle of urban life has had time to unfold. Kharkiv, situated just 40 clicks from the Russian border, is Ukraine's second largest city. Between the wars, it was actually the capital and grew into a centre of industry and education. Kharkiv was to be a showcase of Soviet modernity. It was here in 1928 that Stalin built Dershprom, Europe's tallest glass and concrete building. This collection of skyscrapers, the seat of Ukraine's political leadership with transverse concrete corridors between the buildings, was meant to outshine the bourgeois bank buildings in the old city centre. Dershprom, the palace of industry situated by an enormous open plaza, was an edifice for an empire. While Kiev turned its gaze to the past, Kharkiv looked to the future. However, my own curiosity about the city derives from the virtual antithesis of these grand ambitions, a book of photographs from 1995. I rarely buy such books, even more so at the prices touted by posh galleries, but Boris Mikhailov's case history of Kharkiv that I came across in Stockholm's Moderna Museet, Museum of Modern Art in the 1990s, was impossible to resist in its peculiar repellent allure. The photographs taken in the years following independence depict bombes, Kharkiv's homeless drifters and drug users. These were people with as little hope as glamour, unwanted, forgotten, despised. The photographer writes that on one occasion he saw a young man suddenly turn on a passing bombe and kick him so hard that his bones crunched. He dropped to the ground with a sigh. But Mikhailov's pictures are not just a challenging photographic document of destitution. Many of the photos are naked portraits. Kharkiv's most unlikely models, posed with toothless grins, half-healed wounds encrusted with clotted blood, filthy clothes, pendulous breasts, wrinkled genitals. One woman unabashedly displays a stomach tumour bulging out from her body. We see children cheerfully smoking cigarettes, sniffing glue and kissing. Bombes sleeping on pavements on the rubble of collapsed walls. A naked man sporting a tattoo of Lenin on his chest, knocking back a glass of Holyuka for the camera. All played out with equanimity and a singular joviality. Life goes on until it ends. The photographs were especially unusual for the very reason that they had been taken in the recently dissolved Soviet Union, during which photographs for public consumption were supposed to depict the communist ideal and progress. Everything else risked being classified as an act of treasonous disloyalty and could be severely punished. Depicting images of naked bodies was decadent capitalist behaviour, and the poor and destitute only existed in bourgeois societies. Mikhailov opened a door to the new epoch, with free-flowing liberty and a capitalism that exposed brutal poverty. Ukraine had been on the periphery of the Soviet regime, and Kharkiv had been on the periphery of Ukraine. Mikhailov trained his camera on the unseen liminal people, 
toothless, staggering, naked, and frivolous, in a state without belonging or intelligible history. There they stood, hooting from the other side. We were here all along. I install myself in a room on Velovishinska Volutsia, one of many streets that has reclaimed its former name during the national decommunism project that began in 2015. In Kharkiv alone, over 200 communist street names have been replaced. In a corner of the street, I discover a sign from the old times left on the wall of a building, Karl Marx Street. Further away by the river that branches and winds around the city, Proletarian Square has changed its name to Serihiski Street. And just to the south, the square that once honoured Rosa Luxemburg is now called Pavlivska Square. The Lonely Planet Travel Guide writes rather callously that Kharkiv is a city with much to say about its past, but little to show. The description is witty, but not wholly justified. In 2020, the city's flourishing 19th century has re-emerged in the spirit and architecture of its central districts. A row of dignified banks in the city centre reflects an elegant past. Along the river, dazzling churches flaunt their onion domes, and the older city spreads itself out over vast expanses. And, as is so often the case when visiting a city without a self-evident place on the list of the world's beswarmed metropolises, one is surprised by the pleasant normalcy of the milieu. Restaurants, parks, street art, cafes, museums, fashion-conscious teenagers, strolling pensioners and families playing in beautiful parks. In the north of the city is the enormous Barabashova Market, as big as 120 football pitches and with as many as 70,000 visitors on a good day. The city's civilian spaces reveal little about its history of fathomless suffering. During the Second World War alone, its hardships were of a magnitude that is hard to even imagine. Soviet and German troops fought no less than five times over Kharkiv. When the Nazi Operation Barbarossa rolled eastward, both the tractor and tank factories were evacuated eastward from Kharkiv. Before the Soviet forces beat their retreat, they blew up the buildings in the center. The Wehrmacht took the city at the end of October 1941 and, by way of example, promptly hanged hundreds of Soviet officers and Jews from balconies. The following May, the Red Army returned to reconquer the city. It was a debacle. Close to a quarter of a million taken prisoners, killed or injured on the Soviet side. Their losses eclipsed Germany's tenfold, but the struggle would surge on. In January 1943, the Soviets attacked again. This time they succeeded, and the Soviets held Kharkiv for a few weeks until the Wehrmacht, in its final victory on the Eastern Front, retook the city again in February-March. Half a year later, the German war machine had been ground down by a succession of setbacks, above all the summer's devastating tank battle at Kursk. The Soviets regrouped for another counteroffensive and drove out the Germans once and for all in August. At the start of the war, the city had 900,000 inhabitants. When the Wehrmacht withdrew in 1943, fewer than 200,000 remained. In advance of my arrival, I'd had an almost comical caricature of Kharkiv in my head as the archetypal, forgotten, rusty, bitter, industrial Eastern European city. 
beyond its sprawling centre, this image is also largely true. Drawn by Kharkiv's proximity to eastern Ukraine's ore fields, the Soviets established a cluster of heavy industrial factories here, manufacturing aircraft, locomotives, agricultural and mining machinery, turbines, bicycles, generators and tractors. Tractors There's something emblematically Soviet about tractors. These powerful vehicles that would haul the struggling masses into modernity. Communism meant tractors, not wooden ploughs. Higher education, not eternal slavery. The power of the people, not the power of the gentry, writes Kiel Albin Abrahamson in Ukraina, Ukraina, his formulation encapsulating the luster of a draft vehicle and political system that in the Soviet Union embodied a narrative of national hope. One of the many mocking jokes that circulated during the Soviet era was set at a cultural awards ceremony in the Kremlin's Grand Conference Hall. General Secretary Brezhnev begins by announcing that the winner of the third prize is poet Yevhenyi Yevtushenko for his great works in the service of the people. I hereby confer upon him the prize of... a tractor! Cheers and applause. Brezhnev waits a few seconds and goes on to announce that the winner of the second prize is artist Boris Uhanov for his great works in the service of the people. I hereby confer upon him a much-deserved prize. A tractor! Thunderous applause and stomping feet. It's time for the first prize. Brezhnev clears his throat, pauses for effect, and then solemnly proclaims that the very finest prize is to be awarded to a patriotic hero for his long and important service to literature. Vladimir Vasilievich Karpov. And this comrade who has proved not only to be one of the people, but also a Soviet free thinker, therefore wins a special prize. Namely, the party leader adjusts his glasses, looks down at his notes, and then raises his eyes. 55 years hard labour in the Gulag archipelago. Silence. Then gasps, and the clatter of a pencil hitting the floor. Brezhnev stands silently for a few seconds glances at the guards, and then straightens his back gravely. He grabs the microphone. Just kidding. The first prize is a tractor! Kharkiv's tractor factory was founded in 1931 as one of five major investments in the union's five-year plan. Agriculture was to be collectivized, its success based on rapid mechanization. With the help of an engineer from the West, Tractor production took off during the years in the 1930s that would prove to be the Stalin regime's grisliest. The tractors became a symbol of modernization and a kind of posturing Soviet masculinity. In the space of its 85 years, the Kharkiv factory has turned out 3 million tractors, managing to survive the transition to a market economy too. Today, under the name KHTZ, it is owned by Alexander Yaroslavsky an oligarch who, up until 2012, was president of the internationally successful football club Metalist Kharkiv. Yaroslavsky's tractor factory turned out to have greater resilience than the club he once led. Following the turmoil of Euromaidan, the club found itself in acute financial straits, which led to its disbandment and disappearance into thin air in 2016. In many ways, a typical Ukrainian fate. 
Even large, well-established organizations are possessed by an astonishing volatility in Ukraine. Today's Kharkiv is still a significant center of education and is home to 15,000 students, some 10,000 of whom are foreigners. We have more higher education programs here than in Kiev, over a dozen universities, and lay claim to three Nobel laureates, says Natalie as she shows me around her home city one day. Students come here from around the world, and this creates an atmosphere that's young, open and multicultural. It sometimes almost feels like you're in New York, she says. Since the outbreak of war in the East, Kharkiv has seen dramatic growth. The city centre is buzzing with new bars and cafes, and while some buildings have been renovated, there are new builds with glazed or brightly coloured facades. The war has displaced waves of refugees from Donbass into the effective capital of eastern Ukraine. Shortly after the outbreak of the war in 2014, the city became a clamorous reception locus for the large-scale integration of refugees, but has since regained all the trappings of normalcy. Kharkiv has been affected by the war. The city has grown, and there are many more of us. And when the refugees arrived in 2014, something happened to the mindset. You heard new voices, different words, and more swearing. There are more thefts in the metro today, too says Natalie, when we stop for a rest at a bronze statue of Hetman, commander Ivan Sioko, a 17th-century Cossack military leader, posing beside a cannon, pistols tucked into his belt, his right hand wielding a banner, and his left gripping the hilt of his sabre. In Ukraine, military might, tanks, and soldiers are openly lionized. Masculine warriors stand proudly on countless plinths, Often they are fallen heroes from the Second World War or Afghanistan, firemen from Chernobyl and battle-ready Cossack leaders like Ivan Sirko. Outside the History Museum in Kharkiv, a cumbersome T-34 tank is on display, enthroned atop a pedestal. It was in Kharkiv that this particular model of fighting machine was first manufactured, one that played a decisive role in the forced retreat of the Third Reich from Stalingrad, and, above all, during the tank battle at Kursk, just north of the Russian-Ukrainian border. In wave upon wave, T-34s bore down on the Germans, drew fire, halted, and then steamed on towards the enemy. One anecdote that, despite its dubious veracity, says something about the Soviet attitude, tells of the German army's retreat from Kursk. On orders from Berlin, General von Manstein's troops had managed to transport a seized T-34 to Berlin. Because what was it about these vehicles that made them such invincible war machines? The top brass wanted answers. Heinz Guderian, the father of the Blitzkrieg and head of the tank troops, gave the country's leading engineers immediate orders to see if it was possible to manufacture T-34s in Germany. Their judgment came a fortnight later. No, it was impossible. Guderian was livid. German engineering was unsurpassed. Why was it not possible? The Dower chief engineer's reply was succinct. They would never pass German quality controls. Yes, things made here in the East have that kind of quality, smiles Yuri Larin, a Kharkiv-based journalist whom I arranged to meet one evening in a bar. Dura Kustoy Chevy, 
as my teacher liked to say. It means building something so simple and stable that not even the stupidest soldier could break it. Idiot-proof. I meet Yuri Larin at Fabrika, a spacious, stylish restaurant with a bar in a leafy courtyard. Fabrika was a scruffy old brick-built factory that has now been renovated and sumptuously decorated in a sober, neutral palette. Yuri, a writer for online newspapers by day, tells me about how the IT industry has enjoyed something of a boom in the city. Kharkiv's trained corps of computer engineers have taken advantage of the potential afforded by the internet. Low salaries are a burden for the people, of course, who have to pay extortionate prices for imported products, but they also generate business and opportunities for Kharkiv. Foreign contracts have increased by the year. One study from PricewaterhouseCooper estimates that Kharkiv has 450 active tech companies employing around 25,000 people. 95% of IT production goes to export, and Kharkiv has become an outsourcing centre, in spite of Kiev's IT industry being 15% larger. In 2017, the IT sector created 5 billion hryvnias in tax revenue for the state coffers. An IT worker in Kharkiv earns on average $1,800 a month, six times higher than the mean salary in the city. PwC anticipates a doubling of turnover for the industry in Kharkiv up until 2025 and a trebling of tax revenues. The IT industry bolsters an identity that is not just European, but even more so, globally urban. Fabrika, where I meet Yuri, is part of Fabrika Space, a building that on its other floors houses spaces for co-working and events. But it's in the city centre where the changes are the most obvious. Out in the suburbs, things are totally different, with poor communication and run-down environments. The market economy hasn't been a boon to everyone. In many industries, conditions are appalling, he tells me. This said, Yuri still feels that Kharkiv has been revived and established itself as a global city. Travelling abroad was long seen as a major and costly undertaking. The infrastructure has been massively improved. Several budget airlines fly here and the city has been opened up to the outside world. The fact that the internet is everywhere, in most restaurants for example, also counts. According to Yuri, Kharkiv has gradually recovered its natural status as a modern city over the past few years. At heart, we have a European identity and mentality. The level of education is high, and more importantly, there's a general belief that not only can we shape our lives, but also that we're entitled to do so. The national identity is a stubbornly recurring theme when I talk to people here. Maybe the reason is me and the leading questions I bait them with. Or perhaps the war in the East has in fact accelerated a process of deeper and broader liberation from Russian sovereignty into something new and not yet fully defined. Euromaidan is said by many to have been a catalyst for Ukrainian globalization. Many of the country's experts like to declare that its identity is not defined by its language. A Ukrainian identity also very much includes people who only speak Russian. But how long this will remain the case is anyone's guess. The Ukrainian identity is changing, but at least it has an undisputed champion. Taras Shevchenko, 
the 19th-century author and painter from the village of Morinci in Circassio Blest. His authorship was groundbreaking in that it lifted Ukrainian into the literary sphere and because as a figure he became a fixed point for Ukrainian identity per se. Historian Peter Johnson writes that there are over 1,200 monuments to Shevchenko in Ukraine. Amongst all the statues of the poet, with his bushy horseshoe moustache, the 16-metre colossus in Kharkiv is in a class of its own. It is a statue that is hard to forget, both for its well-orchestrated grandeur and its profound mendacity. Its creators, artist Matvey Manuser and architect Joseph Langbard, won a contest to build the monument that was erected in Shevchenko Park in 1935. Its composition is a narrative of sorts in different acts. High up, twice his natural height, stands Taras Shevchenko himself in twisted contraposto with a fisted right hand and a commanding gaze. On ascending triangular plinths skirting the base are 16 figures symbolizing the history of the Ukrainian people from servitude, suffering and humiliation to militancy, gradual liberation and triumph under the Red Banner. In the West, there is a delusion that social realist art was inferior and flat. This is to confuse form and content. It is true, of course, that the content of Soviet art mirrored the monotonous propaganda and false idealism of the system. But when it comes to form, it is a different matter. In fact, the artistic embodiment of the revolution's ideals and heroic stories were left to the USSR's most gifted painters and sculptors, who discovered their vehicle of expression in this officially sanctioned art. Kharkiv's mammoth 30-ton work recounts how the fate of peasants, labourers and Cossack heroes progressed onward and upward to eventual communist liberation, firmly dovetailing in the Ukrainian national bard, a revolutionary leader and a part of a Soviet project. He was actually nothing of the sort. It is true that Shevchenko was of proletarian stock, he was born into impoverished bondage in 1814, became orphaned at the age of 11 and released from servitude in adulthood. He earned a place at the St. Petersburg Academy of Arts and made his name as an artist and illustrator. When he started to write poetry with Ukrainian nationalist themes, he chose to do so in the scorned language of his home tracts. Even though there were others who had started to write in Ukrainian by the mid-1800s, this would elevate his works, rather than anyone else's, to a national epic. If there was any revolution that Shevchenko sought in his life, it was one that would overturn Moscow's dominion over Ukraine. In a 19th century of nationalist awakening, Shevchenko wrote poems about national emancipation and was imprisoned in 1847 and banished to military service in the Urals for his pains. During his 11 years in exile, he was forbidden to write and paint. But Moscow's choking of the Ukrainian national identity was cunningly handled by the Soviet leaders, who, in this respect, were men before their time. National symbols in different Soviet republics were not banned, but neatly absorbed into an overarching narrative of socialism triumphant. In Kharkiv, the Ukrainian nationalist was made into a hero, one as much Soviet as Ukrainian. The monument's assemblage of figures, 
the fettered, muscular and raging Cossacks, the peasant woman cradling a baby, the soldiers, the laborers with rifles, the woman holding a book, the enslaved bondsmen, and the revolutionaries with banners, extol Taras Shevchenko as the incarnation of a Ukraine liberated from the misery of servitude by communism. The USSR was a multicultural society with a common, uniting narrative. But the monument's perhaps most ironic and alarming feature is visible at the end of this sculptural narrative. At the point of deliverance, a liberated peasant stands with a sheaf of newly harvested grain in his hand, an abundance of food on a pedestal in Kharkiv. The statue was erected in the same decade as famine ravaged Ukraine. Holodomor, the terror famine, reached its zenith between 1932 and 1933 and came to be classified as one of the greatest crimes against humanity in modern history. It is a legacy with which, since independence, Ukraine has gradually come to terms. When the Soviets came to rationalize agriculture in line with communist principles, the collectivization of farms was a central issue. In 1929, the collectivization of rural Ukraine began, and poor crofts and personal smallholdings were supplanted by mass cultivation and meat production using the latest technology. Rapid industrialization also required the export of crops abroad. Ukraine's farms were normally privately owned, and there were also the larger estate holders, called kulaks, to contend with. With the USSR to be recast from scratch, Stalin treated Ukrainian farms like a pantry, reserving particular chagrin for the big farmers, who often opposed collectivization and whom he needed to break. The nationalization of agriculture was followed in 1930 by protests in Ukraine that, at times, had elements of armed resistance. Attempts to hide food for the purposes of survival incited the authorities to raise the demands on crop deliveries from Ukraine. In 1932, the confiscation burden rose by 44%. The famine, already acute and widespread, now gained momentum. The authorities organized brigades for the large-scale confiscation of foodstuffs, including future seed stocks. Eventually, they also confiscated valuables that could be exchanged for food. Some Western witnesses, journalists and diplomats reported in the international press that a politically orchestrated famine was being implemented. Desperate for some wheat to chew on, people took to crawling into the fields, where they died of cold and exhaustion. Others became infected after cooking and consuming carrion. Children collapsed in school, the elderly wasted away in their homes. Death certificates, when issued, would state the cause of death as exhaustion. In 1933, Stalin issued a decree forbidding the people to flee, following up with an order to re-channel the populace into state agriculture. A growing number of testimonies of starvation that were made available to the party leaders were seen as proof of the treacherousness of the Ukrainian peasant class. Instructions were dispatched to the local authorities that such reports were punishable, for if cases of fabricated hunger are revealed, the perpetrators should be regarded as counter-revolutionary elements. Applebaum, 2019 Starvation and the struggle for survival broke down the most basic instincts of altruism and empathy. 
there were increasing accounts of cannibalism, a crime for which 2,505 people were imprisoned between 1932 and 1933. Rural villagers made their way to Kharkiv in the hunt for food. The authorities set up posts on the roads and at the railway stations to prevent this migration, but many people slipped through. Staggering, confused around the streets, they would end up collapsing and dying outside buildings and on pavements. Before expiring, the bodies would shudder uncontrollably in one final, futile attempt to keep warm. In the winters of 1932 and 1933, it is estimated that up to 4.8 million people died of starvation. And all the while, the USSR continued to ship crops out of Ukraine to finance its industrialization and supply Moscow with food. The disaster reached a peak in the summer of 1933, when over a thousand people are thought to have died every hour. When the expropriation of crops ended in March 1933, one-fifth of the rural population had lost their lives. Radio Free Europe's Holodomor archive contains a witness account from Alexa Sonyapur describing an incident one Christmas in her home village in northern Ukraine when she was ten years old. In 1933, just before Christmas, brigades came to our village on the hunt for food. They took every edible thing they could find. That day they found potatoes that we'd planted in my grandfather's garden, which meant they took everything from him and all the seed Grandad had collected for next autumn. The following day they called on us, ripped out the windows and doors, and took everything to the collective farms. The actual number of Holodomor victims is disputed, and lands anywhere between 3 and 14 million. Historian Robert Conquest who first mooted the usual figure of seven million direct victims, has also added a further number of deaths in a prelude to the acute phase. There are also differences of opinion regarding the extent to which the famine was deliberate or a side effect of ruthless, misguided industrialization. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Russian author and Nobel laureate, argued that the famine was not specifically imposed on Ukraine, but was rather part and parcel of the Soviet system's general combination of inhumanity and incompetence, pointing out that Russia also suffered a famine, one that led to the death of six million citizens. In the latter part of the 1930s, the horrors of the famine would be followed up by extensive purges and show trials. Once again, Ukraine became the hardest-hit republic. The Holodomor one of modern history's greatest atrocities, passed without any contemporary records being made. The country's photographers were in the service of the state, and each private photo could be scrutinised on suspicion of contravening the espionage and pornography laws. And therein lies an explanation, I imagine, for Boris Mikhailov's remarkable nude portraits of the ragged proletariat of the 1990s. Mikhailov did not see his work as exploiting human misery, but as a document of suffering in the bodies of his compatriots. A belated counterpart to the millions who died in the 1930s, silently, in front of blind eyes, and doomed to invisibility. These bodies of Mikhailov 
are also an antithesis to the beauty ideals that have emerged as the icons of our age, churned out in Ukraine's soulless TV adverts for plastic surgery, Botox and hair care. Bodies, if they are to be undressed, must be beautiful. Failing that, natural. The unnatural, spent and abused bodies are hidden away, just like the state sought to hide the victims of the Holodomor. We don't have to look. But there is value in seeing how people can be formed and deformed. <laughs>